Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening, and thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, it is a long weekend for some of us, and we hope that you will enjoy it. I hope that you have your refreshments, because tonight he's back. We're going to be in conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. And our conversation is going to center around our brothers. We have labeled this episode of Our Common Ground, A Quiet Danger, Brothers Invisible, Classroom to Home, to help you and to have a community discussion about the boys and men in our lives and in our community. For those of you who are new to us, we are at Blog Talk Radio. If you're listening on your smart device or you're listening um, from your phone, you can dial in and listen to us directly at 347-838-9852. 
And if you'd like to join our chatters in our open, dynamic, always moving and interesting chat room, you can come to the following URLR place on your internet. It's blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. I am broadcasting from the Our Common Ground studios, and for those who who are new with us, thank you for joining us. And for all of you who have supported us all week in our efforts to uh, let our family know about this particular broadcast by sharing our posts, by following us on Twitter and liking us on Facebook, we are very grateful. Before we bring in Dr. Dr. Curry and before um, I tell you a little about him, we're going to be with him in both sessions, session one, session two. For you old-timers that are coming ground, that's page one and page two, I've decided uh, to use another term because as Martin, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in a number of speeches, but in his most important, as Brother Minister uh, Louis Farrakhan pointed out today at the Justice or Else rally in Washington, D.C., where millions of black people, African-American people, people from throughout the diaspora, uh, listen to a plethora of very wonderful speakers, and I'm going to talk about one uh, later on in this broadcast. But um, he he pointed something out that we all ought to really have in the back of our minds as we talk about the crisis, the war on poor people, on black people, the war in this country over the issue of liberty, justice, and freedom, and as we talk about our own personal and collective liberation struggles. And uh, we, we, we are reminded, and he reminded us today, and I watched uh, all of the, 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 the rally, um, and we're going to invite your comments about it when we get into session with Dr. Curry. But uh, he reminded us that Martin Luther King said something very important the night before he was assassinated. And I will quote him. I want tonight, I want to get the language right. And I was just so reminded about uh, our sister and my co-host, my monthly co-host, Dr. Ruby Nell Sales, about this whole issue of language, how we talk about ourselves, how we talk about our struggle, how we talk about the insistent and pervasive systemic and institutional racism in this country, we have got to get the language right. And we'll tell you a little more about that, but I do have a little treat for those of you who did not listen to the rally, and I suggest that if you have on-demand or if you're going to be available around 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, C-SPAN, 
broadcast the entire event. And this is something that Brother Minister Louis Farcon, who is an Our Common Ground voice, who very early in my radio career was so very uh, supportive of what we were attempting to do. Uh, I was one of the featured speakers on the tour of Stop the Violence in the 80s with the Nation of Islam. Um, And um, that gives you a clue about how sometimes we get confused about uh, the Brother Minister's uh, position uh, on women, even though today... He was starting to, you know, you know how he goes off the rail. He and, I mean, brilliant, innovative geniuses always kind of like go off the rail. Well, he went off the rail talking about um, uh, describing women uh, and their power in the nation of Islam and indicating that that they had skills in sewing and cooking. And I'm sure a lot of those women standing there don't have any any skills about sewing and cooking. And if they do, they don't have time. But anyway, he went a little bit off the rails. But one of the things that I learned from a very wise Vietnam veteran uh, who is a very close friend of mine, and he would always say to me, Janice, you've got to learn to take what you can use and leave the rest. For justice, your crime is greater than those who have suffered the most. And those who have suffered the most are the indigenous people, not only of America, but of the Western Hemisphere, And those of us who were brought into America, not as pilgrims, not as Puritans, not seeking another way of worship, but in the holes of of ships to be made the burden bearers of the real citizens of America. It's hypocritical for us to say that we are citizens and we are still trying to get civil rights while at the same time we are denied the human right of self-determination. I am sure... Um, And for those of you who are just joining us, those were part of the remarks that uh, the leader of the Nation of Islam, Brother Minister Louis Farrakhan, delivered today in Washington, D.C. before millions, there were millions, millions of people there. Uh, Don't let the mainstream media get it twisted. Um, before we begin um, and bring on Dr. Dr. Curry, I wanted to uh, encourage all of you and want to extend to our South Carolina listeners and supporters and to the families and our brothers and sisters and members of the community and the citizens uh, of South Carolina who are grabbling with uh, the storm 
um, that if you can, there is the National Action Network does have a nationwide call for household goods, for clothing, for shoes, and for donations. And you may know of others, but I do know of that. The rains may have stopped, but South Carolina is grappling with a host of new concerns, billions of dollars in damage, dam breaks, and families who have lost everything. And we certainly extend our prayers and our hope that our that people will be able to move through this tragedy uh, and identify new paths for their lives because people have really lost their lives. When you lose your home, when you lose all your photos, when you lose all your mementos, when you lose everything that you have, there can be a time where you are simply empty. So I hope that you will join us at our common ground in helping where you can, staying on top of what is happening in South Carolina. It's really interesting, and this is a a note of politics, that of the nine congressional representatives from the state of California, I mean uh, South Carolina, including two of their sitting senators all voted down a bill which would have aided the victims of Sandy, Hurricane Sandy in New Jersey, Delaware, and parts of um, Pennsylvania. So, you know, what goes around really does come around. Another note we want to make about the um, just justice um, or else rally today, my favorite Chicago-based uh, fiery pastor uh, who counted President, Am- President Obama among his flock for two decades um, presented um, at the rally today on a controversial theory. So here we go again. The subject of his talk was Jesus was a Palestinian. And one of the things that he said is, we are grateful to God to be able to be here and speak a word on behalf of Palestinian justice. Uh, He and numerous other speakers gathered during this event, Justice or Else, to mark the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March. I was unable to attend um, and... During his presentation, excuse me, he drew parallels between the struggles of Native Americans, African Americans, and Palestinians, which we had this the same discussion here at our common ground just week before last. And he said that all of us have all suffered under the three-headed demon of racism, mili- militarism, and capitalism, and I was so glad that he was part of what was going on at Washington, D.C., and if you were there and you want to call in, please do um, and tell us about your experience. We're going to be talking with Dr. Tommy Curry about it, our number 347-838-9852, if you want to write that down. 
Just one more thing before we go into our main topic of discussion tonight. I want to make a note that our common ground witness from the bridge and uh and our monthly featured co-host Dr. Ruby Sales is honoring a man who died taking a bullet for her during the civil rights uh activism in um 17 years ago. Jonathan Daniels, a 26-year-old Episcopal seminary student, stepped in front of Ruby, in front of the bullet that would have killed her. Both of them, uh, Ruby Sales, a young black activist from Alabama, and Daniels, a white man from New Hampshire, were devoted to civil rights activism, fighting against segregation in Alabama. And she will be making a presentation tomorrow. Um, And she has also been awarded a national honor. uh, uh, She's being honored nationally by the Alliance of uh, Activist Theologians uh, for her work at the Spirit House Project in Washington, D.C., and I mean in Atlanta, Georgia, and next week she'll be with us as we um, try to tie down um, the end of our series on rebellion and resistance, and we'll talk more to her about it. And 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 today in the Washington Post, she said, um, she was quoted as saying, I didn't rob Daniels of his life, Racism did. And so what I've thought about is, isn't it an absolute travesty that the society would kill its best and brightest when they stand up for freedom? So um, uh, I look forward to having that discussion with um, Dr. Ruby Sales next week. Tonight at Our Common Ground, A Quiet Danger, Brothers, Invisible, Classroom to Home. We're in conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, my favorite scholar and philosopher. He's an associate professor of philosophy at Texas A&M University and a Ray A. Rothrock Fellow in the Department of Philosophy for 2013 through 2016. He's an editor of Phil Papers, Choice Magazine, and a regular contributor to RacismReview.com, <coughs> excuse me, and Our Common Ground. We do not have a cough button here. He has been interviewed by Forbes.com, The Wall Street Journal, Salon.com, and other very popular venues for his opinions on politics, ethics, and racial justice issues, and tonight... We're going to talk to him about black manhood, about the invisibility of brothers in our society. And I hope that you will write down the number and join us in this conversation, 347-838-9852. This is Our Common Ground. And after this, we'll be joined by Dr. Tommy J. Curry. But 
you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight. In conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, a quiet danger, brother, invisible. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Tommy J. Curry, welcome back to Our Common Ground. It's so good to have you back with us. Thank you, thank you. Good to be here. It's uh, You've been doing a, a, a lot of work on the issue of black men. And one of the first things I want to start out talking with you about, and for those of you, you know, excuse me, Dr. Curry, for a minute. Let me get the Our Common Ground family ready for this. I know that there are some of you who are out there saying, but black women too, black girls too. Okay, yes. But keep in mind, that retort is the same as I say black lives matter and somebody else says, well, all lives matter. So this conversation tonight is about black boys and black men in education in the socio environment in which they live their lives we're going to do a little talking about mass incarceration we're going to do a little talking about the prison industrial complex we're going to do a little talking about the struggle of black manhood so our number is 347-838-9852, and uh, we will open up our lines just as soon as Dr. Curry and I have a little conversation. Thank you for giving <laughs> me that time, Brother Curry. Not a problem, not a problem, Jack. <laughs> you, 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 know, you know we have, to, we have to, to, to get it right. No, absolutely. Let's, let's talk first. Uh, I know that when um, you, three years ago, first came to my attention, uh, it was a paper that you wrote that was talking about the need for a genre study of black Mm -hmm. male death and dying. And it led us into a later conversation about the notion of creating and building a research foundation about all these problems we hear. You know, they say black black men, the white people are scared of black boys, the white men fear the black man. So mm-hmm. let's talk about whether or not that has happened. Right, right. Well, you know, I think we're I think we're behind the ball when we're talking about black men and black boys because you have to remember that the conversations that are dictating how we think about black males uh, really come from academics and pseudo-academics. So even today, uh, even in the work that I do, I'm constantly confronted with the materials that are coming off of blogs, that are coming off of web pages, uh, which really see black men as uh, a demon, the demonization, right, or rather the demonization of black men, right, which really sees them as... Uh, patriarchs, misogynists, dangerous to women. Uh, the problem that we have in the academy, and I think that this translates into policy as well, is that we look at black boys uh, and black men, uh, we define them through their lack. We define them 
in the sense that they're not white men. So the only views that we have of them are that they're trying to gain the same power that white men have. So when we talk about black masculinity studies, and this was the conversation that we partly had with uh, with David Eichert uh, a few about a year ago, when we're talking about black masculinity studies, we're not actually speaking about how black men think of themselves. We're not talking about how black boys look at manhood. What we're in fact doing is using theories that are created on European men, Australian boys specifically, so the theory of hegemonic masculinity, for instance, that there's this ideal male type. We're using theories that are created by white people uh, and trying to fit black men into them. So when we look at contemporary intersectionality theory, when we look at uh, black masculinity theory, what we're actually doing is saying that black boys are like white boys. They aspire to be white men, and on that basis, even though they haven't attained patriarchy or any kind of anything that looks like it, we have to condemn them. So every option, every avenue we have to study black males in society and even in the academy revolves around this idea that black men are trying to dominate people. And what I find interesting about this, and I point this out in my works as well as my talks, is that these stereotypes that black men are dangerous, that they're rapists, that they're going to dominate and harm women, we condemn them in society. But then when we call them theory, we somehow applaud it as if this is the cutting-edge paradigm that we should use to understand black males. So genre studies hasn't come up because the way that gender is formulated within the academy, gender means woman. So the studies that we do to vulnerability, at best, talk about homosexual black men. But they don't talk about how heterosexual black men, polyamorous black men, any other kind of you know black men through any identity, Muslim black men, African black males, right? None of these other cultural identities become salient because the idea is that you have to reject the heterosexual black male. He's the danger. He's the rapist. So we understand black men as, well, we feel bad for them. But ultimately, they have a characterological flaw. They're ultimately evil. They're ultimately non-moral. And it's through these kinds of stereotypes that we know that we adamantly fight against and condemn in society that the academic class, both black and white, because there's black scholars that engage in this work too, um, continue to demonize black males, and we can't really get an honest study of them. And this is why, despite the reality that black men and boys find themselves in, with incarceration rates, with unemployment, with education, despite the actual empirical evidence of what they suffer under, it has not made a dent into the theories that are used to talk about them. Because those theories are simply trying to protect us from what we see, from, from what you know these middle class and you know, middle class aspiring black scholars see as the dangerous thugs from their lower class you know, origins and neighborhoods. And there's a very real problem and bias that we have towards studying black males. And it's not going to be remedied until we can start building conversations around black male vulnerability, how black men are actually affected, and how black men have actually, black men and boys have actually created new ways to think about themselves outside of just imitating white people. Well, you know, we have talked about uh, the, the intersectionality of um, black men and black women and recognize that the oppressions, the impact has the same weight, but mm. the oppressions are different. Talk Absolutely. to us about how black men and black boys experience their specific 
the specific and what are the specific types of oppression that they face? Well, I mean that's you know that's a big question. I mean you know the work that I'm doing is showing that many of the things that we understand to be racism, like police brutality or racial profiling, uh, can also be sexual violence. So when we look at cases of stop and frisks of black men, and we look at how many times they've been fondled, groped, in many cases raped, uh, meaning they were annually penetrated um, by batons or guns, uh, we see that these phenomena happen all the time. Uh, despite the occurrence and the multiple stories and data we have suggesting that this constantly happens, I think I've mentioned, you know, the case of Darren Manning, you know, whose testicles were grabbed and, you know, and, and injured uh, when he was racially profiled by a white female cop. You know, all these things constantly happen. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is why do we see, why do we not understand, why can't we conceptualize that black men and boys are victims of sexual violence, that black men and boys experience rape? I mean, one of the things that, you know, Laura, Laura Stemple's work's done is shown that one of the reasons that rape in this country uh, between men and women are, are almost equal is because we have to look at incidences of rape that occurred not only in prisons, but also in juvenile uh, detention centers. How not only men are being raped by other men prisoners, but also men and female staff. You know, there's a very complex problem around the, uh, around the, the experiences and, and vulnerabilities of men in this country. But when you're talking about black men, the stereotypes, the sheer stereotypes that black men are violent isolates them to only being perpetrators of violence and not victims of it. I mean, when you look at incarceration rates, how people are marked, how black men specifically are marked even after they get out of jail. So traditionally, we, you know, especially in liberal arts, we look at the incarceration system as, oh, that's the prison industrial complex. Yeah, it's bad. But we don't look at or consider any of the actual effects that incarceration has on the lives of young black men and boys. Because when you get out of prison, it's not like people hire you. Right, I mean, even when you when you look at the, the the attitudinal studies, white people are more likely to discriminate against black men compared to their black female counterpart, simply because they associate black men with the prison, with being the criminals that were in jail. So there's this huge effect that the incarceration system has on how black men are viewed generally through society. They're stereotyped even if they don't have criminal records. And if you do mm-hmm. have a criminal record, the likelihood that you can actually get a job that someone will actually hire you is close to none. The amounts of discrimination just off the door, off the bat. So what we have is the constant, constant downward mobility of young black men and boys because they can. This is you got to think this is ages from like eighteen to thirty-five. You know we have this downward mobility of this group of young black men and boys where they they're going to have to turn to you know they're either com- committed to a life of poverty or a life of crime to make you know to maintain basic sustenance. These are the kinds of problems. Now, when we compare that to the situation of black women, we look, they're, they're in the same environment, the same households, so they share in the consequences, but it's very different. The number of black women incarcerated, like in federal prisons, are like 22,000, 23,000. You're complaining that's over half a million of black men. When you're looking at the problem of employment, we're looking at a phenomenon where black women are underemployed, meaning they're working multiple part-time jobs, where black men are still dealing with the issue of not being able to find work, which is something that has been historically relevant to how black men look at the issue of employment. So in, in, that, in that way, you're both dealing with poverty, you're dealing with economic isolation and marginalization, but the causality of them are going to be very different. 
If a black man is locked up in prison, then that means that the hardships of underemployment are amplified for black women and other women of color. If a black man gets out of prison and still can't find a job, then it says, well, then what's the worth of the black man in the sense that he can't contribute to the household? And we know through black family studies, right, you know, this is Joyce Ladner's work, Nathan Harris' work, that these types of things accumulate and lead to the breaking down of not only households but also communities. So the ways that contemporary theory likes to explain gender is really an essentialist account. The assumption is that black men and boys, because they're male, have privilege, right, that they're advantaged because of their maleness. It has absolutely no empirical evidence to support such a claim, but that's the overwhelming dogmatic frame that we have. So instead of us actually being able to explain the interaction that black men have with black women, that black boys have with the prison industrial complex, we just dismiss it and reverse simply to idle dogma. We have people that write blogs suggesting that black men, despite being incarcerated, uh, you know, in, enjoy more freedoms than black women. And everything that we think about becomes this test, this barometer, to make sure that we're never engaging black men and boys in a way that, make, that, over, that crosses over this mythical standard of erasing black women. And what this ends up doing is stopping all research, censoring the research that's coming out and the theories that are developed concerning black men. Everything now becomes, well, black men have to be feminists. That doesn't talk about the structural realities. When we look at actual empirical data, most of the studies from the 1980s forward have shown that black men are already feminists. By that, if you mean they view interlocking oppressions, want female leadership, believe that women have you know, multiple aspects of their oppression, there's no difference between what black men and black women think on these issues. But what we try to do to the public is to convince them that black women, because they're black and female, have unique experiences and perspectives and avenues of how the world is. When these are sociological phenomena, not mystical phenomena that is given to people because they're born with a vagina versus a penis. But because we're dealing with theory, theorists still focus on how we look at the body. And that becomes the basis both of what they see as being the, the, the unique insight of the black female and unfortunately what they think is the stereotypical violent tendency of the black male. And because these are black scholars doing that work, people don't want to question their biases. They don't want to question how other black people internalize certain pathological views of lower-class black people. They don't want to talk about how upper-class black men and upper-class black women hold stereotypical views of poor working-class black men. And it's this problem in the academy where we can't examine phenomena, where we can't think about black men and boys as complex beings outside of really criminals and rapists, that we get this kind of narrowly tailored scholarship that simply says, well, black men, because the Black Panthers did it, or because Eldridge Cleaver said it, or because Stokely Carmichael said it, every black man from the 1960s to now and all the way back to the 1850s believed it. These are these are hashtag logics, as I like to say. They don't require you to actually know anything about what black men and boys have done or their vulnerabilities to different systems and structures in society. And what that does is it tells us that we don't have to look at the interaction. Right? This is this is the important part, the interaction that black male incarceration and death and undereducation actually have in, on black families, black households, black women, etc. This is why that study on fatherhood became so important, because it wasn't feminism. It wasn't all these people that allegedly did race, class, and gender that overwhelmingly refuted the idea that black men were deadbeats or deadbeat dads that didn't care about families. It wasn't that theory that did it. It was an actual study that showed that black men have a very rich involvement, not only with their families, but their communities. 
Right? This is this is Robert Staples' point back in the 1970s that even when black men are taken out of communities, black men take it upon themselves to serve as role models and examples for other young black boys that don't have fathers. But that compassion that black men have, that reflexivity, their ability to reflect on their conditions, to recognize the need of others, is something that's never talked about. So the only narrative we get of black men and boys is a narrative which depicts them in their social roles as criminals. We mistake their sociological condition, their poverty, unemployment, incarceration, etc., as a question of their ontology, what they actually are, what they're defined by. And I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes that we that we all admit because we wouldn't we would never say that black people are only what their conditions are. This is the insight of being conscious, right? This is the insight of being educated to recognize that black people are victims of circumstance, not the causes of their own circumstance. Mm-hmm. But when we engage mm-hmm. with black males. Somehow that thought never crosses our mind. We don't think about the traumatic experiences that may cause a black man to be a rapist or cause a black man to be an abuser because we don't care. We simply don't care if he's a victim of violence. We don't care about his mental health. So that difference is that there are discussions about black women and what they're vulnerable to that they're vulnerable to rape, that they're vulnerable to sexual violence, that they're vulnerable to domestic abuse, and their shelters. For these people, for black men, there's nothing. When we when we do research on, on black men and try to find out what mental health services are available to them, there's hardly any. Some shelters outright say they do not accept men, despite it being part of the law. So these well, you know, types it, of it, things I, matter. I was involved uh, maybe about 20 years ago uh, in a project proposal that had to do with creating um creating the idea of working with batterers mm-hmm. was an integral and very significant and important part of dealing with the issues of domestic violence in our society uh working through the CDC and some other agencies when all of a sudden Domestic violence became a national priority, but everything was um, targeted toward the victim Mm -hmm. rather than dealing with the root causes of the perpetrator, at the perpetrator. And it took us about almost five years to finally get and thank God for Carmen Del Rosario, who has been a guest on this show and who is my BFF, living in (laughs) Ethiopia, doing work with men who have been part of the military violence uh, across the continent. I mean, she's been in Rwanda, she's been in Tanzania, she was in the Congo for two years, dealing with men who were trained, who were programmed to be violent, and that violence... Uh, erupts in your family when you simply become a violent personality. But aside from that, uh, and and I absolutely agree with you that this country has not addressed the systemic impact of white supremacy and the demonization of black men. I mean, it's been since 1990 when Haki uh, Matabuti wrote his book, Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, mm-hmm. looking at this transition of how not only people outside of our community, but people inside of our community right. began to accept 
the negative and demonization of black men and black boys. And it's really interesting that you cite Dr. Nathan Hare and Dr. Joyce Ladner, both who have been part of this program for many years, um, and their work was published in the 1970s Absolutely. and 80s. And Absolutely. we still don't have uh, a, a, a national priority or even a community priority relative to how we deal with all of the issues that you just outlined. Let me ask well, you a question. Sure, sure. I want to ask you a question. And I want you out there who are listening to think about what the answer is. And I know you all are saying, well, Janice, what is your point? My point is to make my point. Um, and, and here's the question. When we talk about black men and black boys, how many of us immediately think about the black men and the black boys sitting in front of us? I mean, it is obvious that we all uh, have an instinct response by thinking about, like I think about my precious grand princes, uh, one and two, uh, but we think about the men and boys who we have nurtured. But how many of us really are thinking about the men and boys who have not been nurtured and the vulnerability of the lack of that nurturing. For instance, and i give you an example, how many of us have organizations, have activism going on around black youth in our community, but we only do it with the kids who come to the community center? And I've mentioned this to you before, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Tommy. Um, we have got to stop thinking that everyone is like us. Everyone is not mm -hmm. like us. And and that's my question. Because huh. Haki Matabuti raises the same question in his essays in Discovery, Solution, and Hope. And that was back yeah. in 1990 when he was blowing the whistle. He, along with Dr. Naeem Akbar. I mean, I'm not talking uh, something that I heard. They were blowing the whistle and raising the alarm on our common ground in 1980s and 1990s about this very subject. No, you're absolutely right. It seems like we haven't moved. Well, I mean, we, but we I want to go back to the point about mm -hmm. when we do study boys, when we do set up programs for boys and for men, are we trying to... Are, are we designing, is our strategy around having the model be the men and boys who are around us, our husbands, our uncles who are all doing the right thing, who somehow survived, and we are not thinking about that sometimes what we see, see as survival is not the same as thriving. Absolutely. That these are men who are doing what they are what they feel they are expected to do, and they hide from themselves because they don't want to be vulnerable to being a subject of what is in, in of the environment in which they live. So that, that's well, a lot of questions. I know you could sort it well, out. No, no, but I think, but I think you're right, though. I mean, I mean, let's look at this. Let me let's be, let's be honest for a moment. 
when when you had the Wade Nobles, when you had you know the Montebutis, when you had the Harris, the Staples, the Ladners, uh, even the Francis Roger Rose's work, right? When you had the the flourishing of Black Family Studies, you had a very rich historical and sociological tradition. Mm-hmm. And what did you have, right? And this is Sylvia Winter's point, right? What did, what what happened? You had a demonization of that work because those people came from a location of black consciousness, racial consciousness, economic analysis that is very much at odds with the ways that we think of post-structuralism, feminism, and intersectionality today. We have conversations in the academy about black men and boys that have nothing to do with the reality of black men and boys. So we, we, again, you know, this is part of that conversation of privilege. You can have black men and boys locked up in prison and still have such a disconnect in the academic class of black scholars that allegedly study black people that they're willing to say those people have privilege. There's no – because people have been trained to only talk in terms of discourse and political identity or really identity politics, there's no way they understand the material arguments of socialization, of family, of mental health, self-esteem, depression, self-efficacy. These types of terms that are used in sociology and psychology have no resonance with people who are doing gender studies, or at least black gender studies, because they're not studying these people empirically. They're reading Bell Hooks' work, and Bell Hooks says, well, black masculinity is phallocentric. They're still reading Michelle Wallace's work, which has been completely disproven and reneged on even by her, Right? These these are the texts, these are the Bibles of that kind of approach. So what it leaves us with is exactly what you're saying. The attempts for us to help or study black men and boys for these classes of people are going to be how do you make black men and boys adopt our liberal feminist progressive leanings about the world. It's not a question of how do black men and boys, because they're isolated, economically deprived, undereducated, Incarcerated, profiled, sexually abused, domestically abused, etc. Those questions are not part of how you reformulate the conversation on black males. And this is the again, this is why I say this is the weakness of black academics is that we don't we don't criticize each other. We, the, the idea is like you know each one take one teach one that type of thing, and then you then mm-hmm. once you do that, everybody has their clique, right? Well, you know, you never criticize people in your clique, and most times the cliques are so big and powerful that, you know, if you if you want to get on MSNBC, well, you know, you better shut up and say, you know, and kind of toe the line. But that means that <laughs> but the trade-off. MSNBC is, you, you haven't been with me, uh, with us um, uh, for a little bit after we took our summer break, but MSNBC is kind of uh, falling apart. So where they go? Well, no, I've, yeah, I've been, I've kept, you know, I've kept up with it, but, <laughs> but the point is, is that I don't see people on MSNBC that are making arguments on the basis of empirical research, right? Like this, the the strength, the strength of how we think about black communities should be based on what we know about black communities. So if you tell me something like Trayvon Martin was shot, then I want to know, well, then what precipitated that? Why does this white person believe this is okay? We can say we can say what we want all day. Blogs are you know blogs are like everything now. You know everybody has one, but that doesn't tell us the understanding of the conditions of black people. It may tell you what you think or what your interests are, but that's not that's not research. And I think that when you talk about black men and boys, it allows because you're not interested in research, it allows you to take in these stereotypes that exist in our society. 
The idea that there are not black women that hate black men. The idea that there's not black men that hate black women. The idea that black families don't have mutual cycles of abuse. All this is ignored in how we think about the real issues and problems within our communities. But nonetheless, they're all real. We can point to, we know, we have case studies. Clinicians have talked about how various clients talk about their visceral hate for each other. We know that we have mothers that beat up boys, that boys that beat up their, you know, their, their, their future partners because of these incidences of trauma. We know the same thing happens to black girls. See, this is, this is how you have to address the problems in a community, not to get your, the community to adopt your middle-class progressive gender politics, but to understand why the community exists in a world where black men are being killed, when black men fear death. Like, imagine the mental health of young black boys in this country right now. I mean, think about the young black boys that are growing up literally seeing Trayvon Martin and Michael, you know, Trayvon uh, Martin and uh, M- Michael Brown. Like, think, mm-hmm. think about that. Or even John Crawford. If I were a black boy, I'd go right? to a Walmart and should be in my Walmart exactly. anyway. Or Austin exactly. Grant or, or George Tamir Davis. Rice. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, if I play my music too loud, if I'm just outside with a toy gun. Right, the young black boy that just got suspended for playing a staring game with a white woman. I mean, think about the kind of anxiety that this places on young black boys. Like, what is mm-hmm. it? What does it mean to even live in a society where, if you look at a white woman, well, we're talking about nineteen, we're talking about Jim Crow now, where if you stare at a white woman and they believe that she fears threatened, that that's enough to get you suspended in the twenty-first century. We're not talking about the first or second decade of the 20th century. Uh-huh. In the 21st and, and century, a, and this a, still happens. And a junior high schooler. Exactly. And Somebody that probably hasn't even gone through puberty century. yet, much less. Yeah, exactly. But this but, is what's imprinted on young black boys. How much of this is driven by what you have called in a number of your papers, negrophilia, um, the way in which lynching was endorsed as a technology of of making our community safe. Oh yes, yes. I mean, well, I mean, I think a lot of it does. I'm I not trying to incite anything, and I don't think that violence is an appropriate response. Well, let me. Okay, well, I'm gonna days. back up here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you, you have not, your day. I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stop it. I'm not trying to incite nothing. <laughs> right. But. <laughs> See, Tommy, you can get me in trouble. Um, but one of the things that I don't understand, and I'm wondering if it is our if if it is a form of this negrophilia or a form of our own fear mm-hmm. of our own brothers and 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 our husbands and our uncles because we have bought into the factors established under white supremacy about black men. No, I think I I got to be honest. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, one of the ways that I use negrophilia in in my work, you know, I've actually just I'm almost finished with my book, um is that it's the flip side of the coin of negrophobia. So black men seem to have to to ignite a response in in other people, white and black alike, uh, where they become very fearful. Uh, it's a kind of anxiety that turns black men, the black men that these people engage with, into their worst fear. 
right? You know, I talk about it as a skiophobia, where, you know, they, it's like they have a fear of shadows. Black men are, you know, a shadow when you're a kid, you know, it becomes your, the word, the one thing that you fear the most, right? And, yes. and this is what black men become to most people in society. But there's there's a flip side to that. So there's the aspect of fear. There's also a certain kind of philic aspect to it, meaning that people are obsessed and desire lust after that. So one of the reasons that you see so many aspects of these young black boys who are stopped and frisked being raped and anally penetrated is because there's a sexual component to this fear that you is something that you claim that you detest, something that you can't stand, but nonetheless you still lust after it. So when you look at how these young black boys are being interpreted, it's both the fear they have that these white people claim they have of black men you know, raping or assaulting young black women, but it's also part of the kind of erotic desire of their culture where they've over-sexualized black boys and black men to believe that that's their desire in the first place. In other words, white people are the ones who crave black men. They're the ones that have written that sex and, and rape and all these things are part of their psych, are part of black men's psychology. It's not black men who are doing that. But that in doing that, it shows that they're both fearful of it, but they also desire because they're the ones that put that on black men. Black men haven't come out in any period of history and be like, we want white women. Black men have never done this. Black men have never come out and said, oh, you know, I mean, think, think about what Michelle Wallace puts on black men and boys, right? That, like the birth of the nation. The minute they get politi- political power, they're going to go to white women. I recently gave a paper here at A&M where a young uh, black woman told me that black men uh, marry, 50% of black men marry white women. And so you have to think about where these ideas are generated. I'm, you know, the, the the number's never been above ten percent. Black black people, as a race whole, you know, as a whole race, they they have the the lowest number of intermarriage races amongst all, you know, intermarriage uh, amongst all the races. But nonetheless, there's these these views, these stereotypes that this is what black men crave, and this mm-hmm. is kind of that philic aspect that mm-hmm. in in wanting the black male, you you endow him, you project your desire of what he's about upon him, so that it becomes possible. Mm-hmm. And so this we, is the same thing we, that happens, you know, throughout murders, through vigilantism. You know, this is this this is just the complex nature of of white psychology. You know, one of the things that I think that uh, I, I think of often is that in this white supremacist society that we live in, uh, it has so many difficulties for black people. But the likelihood that the outcome of those difficulties for black men and black boys is death. Where else in the hell on the planet of the earth would a civilized, industrialized, technologically aligned society allow a part of its population to be targeted in that way, with the exception of the West Bank and Gaza, where? Well, this is this is this is the problem of genocide, right? I mean, this is this is what the UN says, right? You take away the ability of a people to reproduce themselves, both physically and culturally. So, when you look at something like uh, Sedanus's work on uh, the subjugated uh, target male hypothesis, the subjugated male target hypothesis. You know, his work stands in sharp contrast to how we think of something like intersectionality, whereas intersectionality is going to argue that 
black men because they're male have power, which is really just an explication of, you know, a white feminist named Catherine McKinnon's work on dominance theory. When you look at those types of arguments and then say, okay, well, why do we see such a break then? So we, if we truly believe that black men are in a position that's better than black women uh, or other women in society generally, then as you say, why do we see this kind of unbridled killing? Why do we see cops shooting black men in numbers of the excess of 300 and only killing black women in, in numbers of 20 to 30 to 40? Right? Why do we see half over half a million black men in jail where we only see, you know, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand black women in jail, right? Or prison rather. Why do why such disparities? And the work on a subjugated male target hypothesis is that in these patriarchal societies, sexual violence and power and aggression are aimed at the subjugated males of the society because these are what patriarchal white males actually fear. Now under that dynamic if we think of that, you know, going back to something like James Baldwin's going to meet the man, going back to something like Richard Wright, uh, Richard Wright's work, we can see then that there's a homosexual or homoerotic tension in how white men react and relate to black men. The reason mm-hmm. that, as you say, that you get lynching and the castration of black men, and even if you look at someone like Vincent Wooder's work, why you get the consumption, literally white men eating black men, is because there's a de- desire to consume or to ingest the black male form to ingest that sexual potency and if you think about it in terms of that relationship on top of the kinds of disparities that you see amongst young black men and boys in comparison not only to white men but also to their female counterparts then that theory better explains why you have so much black male disadvantage because white men are targeting black men such that they both so they can't compete sexually but more importantly so they can't compete culturally or economically See when you, I mean, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, one of the, one of the tricks of scandal, isn't just the question of whether or not uh, Carrie Washington plays a Jezebel character. I think the show's racist and problematic in that sense, but there's but there's something much more complex there. If you look at the class of black women that supported the the show, the class of women are educated professional black women, and the ideal there is that Carrie Washington represents a figure and an icon that is representationally trying to orient other members of the society to see that an educated, economically viable black female person is compatible with a white man. Now, why is that important in relationship to black men? Well, it suggests then that when you have something like a sort of mating, we're saying that there's, one, not enough black men to marry black women, and two, there's not enough economically and educationally mobile black men to marry this class of black women, then it means that black women have to have to do somewhat of a socializing role, right? Because racism is so prevalent in this society that white men and other groups of men would naturally think of them as partners. So the dynamic of black males' disadvantage also has allowed certain economic classes and cultural reformations that are trying to show, well, if he's disadvantaged in this way and can't participate and provide the way that other alpha males in this society do, then we have to reorient and re-socialize people to believe that black women could be with these white alpha males. Now, many people don't want to accept these kinds of analyses because if it's true, then it suggests that the disadvantage of black men is such that even black women, who are supposed to be the most disadvantaged group in the, in, in the country, have the advantage of being able to select outside of them. Right. They've created a program to select outside of them. Mm-hmm. But this is what mm-hmm. I mean when I say that we have to look for new theories to explain what's going on, what's actually going on in our communities. When we keep you know, talking about intersectionality, of, I'm sorry? 
Go ahead. No, I was just saying, we keep talking about intersectionality as the only causal explanation of everything that goes on in our communities, then we lose sight of the black family. We lose sight of subjugated black men. We lose sight of the actual disparities that are going on that are driving certain ideological changes between black men and women in the larger society. And the reality of this, Janice, is that when that happens, that's why you don't have the study of black men and boys. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. people have decided they're just not relevant enough to study outside of reporting their deaths. You can talk about black men in prison. You can talk about how many black men die. You can talk about how many black men aren't graduating. But you can't talk about them as theoretical agents. In other words, you can't say, here's a black man who has a conceptualization of the world that's focused on what's happening to other black men. Those types of conversations in the academy are dismissed summarily. Journals don't mm-hmm. want to publish you. I've gone to panels. I mean, in my field, every time black men are on panels together, there's only 75 of them, right? But every time they're on panels together, it is customary for there to be some white woman or black woman to launch an attack on it, to say this is an all-black male panel, it's exclusive, it's oppressive, etc. Mind you, black men are outnumbered by almost 30,000 in the academy, they're the minority in relationship to the white male, white female, and black female groups in the university. But they're still booed and dismissed as illegitimate if they're trying to talk to each other about any set of ideas. So what well, this it, does it, is it creates a fear of, of speaking, of black men representing both their own interests and speaking and studying themselves. But I, I think that in uh, the historical context, one of the things that we have to understand, despite intersectionality, of gender and uh, class in our community is that while black men have been rendered socially, politically, and conceptually invisible and their bodies have been targeted for disposal, unless we theorize their lives, we really can't understand the vulnerability of black people in general. We've got to take a break, Dr. Tommy Curry, because when we come back, I do want to talk uh, more about how black males are the depositories of the negativity traditional association with blackness, because there is a transcendence. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight, we're in conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Uh, We hope that you will... When given an opportunity, join us in this conversation. You need to write it down, 347-838-9852. We thank you for being with us tonight on Our Common Ground. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. With this one white girl, and we just gone off the bus, and we were about to, we were almost home, and there were these group of black kids that just gone out of school, and she was like, "Oh, let's cross the street. There's a group of black kids. I don't want to run into them." And so she told me, which I don't even know why she would do that. I used to wear a sweatband, like just to reinforce my wrist, and I had a teacher come up to me and say, "You should take it off because it looks gang affiliated." I've been in situations where, you know, I had to cross the street because I didn't want to scare the white lady that was walking. I'm letting you know that it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh, no. 
Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real raw, right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media, come on baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. Join my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m., the I Declare Show with India Declare. India returns September 15th. 9 p.m. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show, baby. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. If you're willing to accept our freedom, then you have to be willing to accept what comes with it. This is about every black man who cannot get justice. You need to represent. You need to be the voice for people who do not have a voice. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. To our common ground with Janice Graham. I, I, I don't have an answer that is palatable to be able to, to, to look at my children in the face and say there are people in this country who not only do not like African Americans, but they despise black men. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. But I'm strong, 
and we thank you for being with us here tonight as we are in conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry of Texas A&M University. He is a professor of philosophy and African-American studies. Dr. Tommy, thank you so very much for being with us. Indeed, uh, I think that we have to step back and really understand that he's my brother, and a lot of us don't. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you got to think about the just the, the overall disregard um uh, that we have for for black men and boys. You know, I mean, this is a world where you know, and I and I've, and I've I've made comments about, you know, even the say her name movement and how we look at Black Lives Matter based on this is that how do we understand a movement that I I grant that we should be inclusive of all black people. We should be inclusive of every black person that's been harmed or killed. But how do we understand the disproportionate vulnerability of black men being killed next to their female or queer, queer, or trans, you know, counterparts? How do, how do we understand that? So we, if we accept the numbers of how many people are killed, and then we say that the group that's most that's killed the most, that's killed in ninety percent of the cases, has to be silent. I don't know what that means for a politically viable movement. I don't know what it means when educated or semi-educated middle-class organizers get to tell working-class black people that they have the wrong view of their lives. And this doesn't, again, this doesn't come from any empirical source. This doesn't come from, well, look, here's how many people are being brutalized and they're equal to you or they're slightly lesser. This comes from an overwhelming reality that there are over almost a million black men in prison that there are there are three to three hundred plus black men being shot or killed by police, and that's just not the same proportion that's happening in these other groups. It doesn't mean that we should ignore the other groups, but it certainly means that when we're talking about victims, and this is why understanding that black men are vulnerable and can be victims of violence is absolutely crucial to understanding how we can actually care and understand for black men and boys. If we're going to negate the idea that they can be victims and they're not put in a category of moral concern, that we don't believe that you should care about black men and boys, then we have a very real problem in this society. And that's why the work that I'm doing now is talking about the concept of racist misandry, that you can't look at what happens to black men and boys in this country and not have a very visceral and real, very obvious phenomena of the hate for black men. In other words, when black men don't get jobs because people think that they're felons, but black women or white women or other women of color can get jobs because they're assumed that, well, it's probably safe to assume that they're not criminals. This tells a very real gender of a very real gendered racism or sexual racism. And if we don't understand how these stereotypes are specific to black males, they're not just racism, they're specific to the quality of their maleness, then we're not going to capture what black men and boys are actually going through. And this is what I mean when I say that we need to expand frames. I think that it's insulting to the intellectual history of black people that we believe that our frames of existence can be literally numbered, like race, class, gender, sizeism, you know, like we just we just assert these categories. How do we know that phenomena that are not in that category list don't exist? Why do we interpret all of black life under these models? This is silly. This is simplistic. I don't know a period of time in the world where we've ever said, hey, black people, you're these three things. Let's go. And people have accepted it. 
But when we do this with black men and boys, with black males, people believe it's gospel. People simply believe that if you show that black men have a propensity to be dangerous to people, then there's no need to study black men. And that if you do, you should shame people who do do it. I mean, you have to think, the Academy has over 1.2 million white people. <laughs> white people are that much. There are only like 80,000, you know, 110,000 black people. And in, in that small number, we're willing to tell a, a, almost half of that, that group that you shouldn't research yourself. We'll let white men talk about themselves and confess how racist they are. We'll let white women talk about how oppressed they are, despite being the second richest group in terms, practically in terms of income and wealth. And we'll let black women talk about themselves in terms of their struggle and their uplift and social mobilization to the higher ranks of society. Right? Or a very, well, a very specific class of black women into the higher ranks of society. But anytime black men speak about themselves in any positive manner, it's assumed to be nationalist. Or, or what's the new thing they call it on Twitter? Hotep Twitter, right? These things are silly. They 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 rationalize a kind of ideology that necessitates censorship. We suggest that any study of black men is caping for black men, making apologetic on their behalf. When in reality, I think black men have done so much, both good and bad, that we can see that black men are reflective about their situations as human beings, just like any other group of people, black women included. So the, you know, the, the for, dismissal is part of the dehuman is, is an effect of dehumanization of what we ultimately think black males are in this society. Mm-hmm. For, the, for 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 those of you who are listening, um, to give you a a, a a point of reference and some homework, you might want to take a look at um, Vincent Woodward's "The Delectable Negro: Human Consumption and Homo Eroticism Within." Slave cultures, and I'll uh, post that in uh, our chat room. I I have posted Dr. Curry's paper uh, that talks about um, black male death and dying. And and uh, Dr. Curry, let me ask you uh, to talk to us a little about the importance of multi of understanding the multi-dimensional nature. Uh, and the psychological damage that happens to black men and places them in a, in a sort of silence about yeah. their own specialized kind of suffering in a system of, of white supremacy. Well, I mean, look, this is, again, what I was talking about, the ways that the different forces and pressures in the academy you know, come together uh, really to to necessitate censorship. This is what I mean, right? That under the current approach, the current uh, you know I call it the current intersectional paradigm, black men are thought to be silencing every other group, specifically black women, when they speak of their vulnerability. Um, in fact, this is a very common view that's come out of uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's recent work, as well as people like Devin Carbato's who suggested that because black men are affected by the criminal justice system, racial profiling, et cetera, because they're so disadvantaged, they take up all the conversations about vulnerability. Okay, And what this has done is this has said, okay, well, if you take up all the conversations, then we need to stop people from speaking about it. Now, people have responded to that, multidimensionality scholars like you know Darren Hutchinson, 
uh, Floyd Weatherspoon to a certain extent have responded to that by saying that, well, these notions of privilege that you assert black men have because they're heterosexual are not really privileges. For example, if you say that a heterosexual black man is privileged because he is a straight black man compared to a gay black man, then what you've overlooked is the ways that heterosexual black men are thought to be rapists out to get white women or that they're going to rape, right? The heterosexuality is, in fact, not a privilege in the society. So the reason multidimensionality is so important is because it leads us to empiricism. And this is this mm-hmm. is a big part of the research that I do, is that I'm saying that what intersectionality or hegemonic masculinity frames do is they want an a priori assumption, meaning that you don't have to look at reality. You can just literally close your eyes, think real hard, and based on the definitions you have on black and male, say that black males, because they're male in a patriarchal society, have privilege. That never has to be tested. It's just true. It's like, you know, all bachelors are single men. It's true by definition, right? Multidimensionality says, well, look, if you're going to say that a category like male, black maleness exists and, you know, has an effect on the lives of black men, then you need to actually have some evidence of that in society. So it means that you have to do some empirical work. And I think that that's absolutely necessary to start sparking conversations about black men. Because in the university, and I think even even in these kind of circles, you know, if, if we lose blogs and Twitter as any indication, even in popular circles of the activist community, they view black men in such a way that any time black men do anything, if black men speak for themselves, then that somehow becomes a condemnable act. That you're speaking as if you're a black male. You should never speak as if you're a black male. You should only censor other voices, be they queer, queer, or, or female. So black men then are functionally told, are basically told as a matter of political ethics, that they should never have a politics. And I think that is a very dangerous sentiment to have, given that the realities of black men in this country are so overwhelmingly overshadowed by things like structural racism, incarceration, and death. It -hmm. means that even Mm -hmm. when black men can empirically show that they're killed the most, incarcerated the most, get get the least access to mental health services, get no treatment for rape or sexual abuse, no matter what they can prove empirically, We've already inculcated in many people's minds that we should never speak about black men. And I've actually had conversations with people where they say things like, well, black women are the largest growing population of, of prisoners in the world, in the country. And I tell them, like, yeah, but do you know how much they've gone from? I was like, yes, they've increased by two or 3,000. So now they're 23,000 instead of two, you know, 19,000 like they were a few years ago in prisons, right, in, in federal prisons. You know, and people would say, well, I heard these numbers are used to silence black women. I mean, this is this is the reality that you deal with when you're discussing black men, that even the presentation of things like a fact becomes morally condemnable if it doesn't live up to these other progressive politics. And it's not always in comparison. Many times it's in comparison to black females, right? But it's not always in comparison to black females. There are some people who just fundamentally believe that you should not speak of black men as if they're A, vulnerable, or B, that they have redemptive or vindicating qualities. They only want to read black men as kind of the, 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 prote- the antagonists of, of history, that they're, that they're the problem, that every black political movement failed because it was led by black men, that the civil rights movement ultimately failed because it was led by black men. 
But then when you say you see things like Black Lives Matter and say, well, look, this is a movement led primarily by women. Can't we criticize? And they're like, well, if black men criticize, this is them trying to dominate, trying to be sexist, right? So it puts black men in a situation where no matter what they do, any opinion, any political action, any visibility to their problems is seen as morally condemnable and a trade-off with other groups that are allegedly more important. And well, this is I a function of, to, of dehumanization. I, I would function to disagree with you in this way, and mm-hmm. that is not only does it put black men in a, in a as they say, a trick bag, mm-hmm. it puts the black family, the black community, in oh, a trick bag. I mean, I, I really, when I, when I read your work, when when you know, I, I have to really stretch and say to myself, and you know, I'm I'm not one of those people who purports that there is anything um, beneficial uh, to calling yourself a black feminist. Mm-hmm. Or a, uh, I mean, we have misogynists in our community, just like Absolutely. any community has. We live in a society that supports and rewards misogyny. Just all mm. you have to do is just look around you. But when we dismiss any element of the impact of systemic, institutional, and personal Race, race, racist experience. We all are troubled. Our lives are distorted and distended in a negative way by it. Well, you know, know, that's, I, that's hard to disagree with. Like I, you know, I mean, I think you're right. But the, but this but this is what I was saying at the beginning that when when we censor black men on the backs of elite black people in the academy, right, then what that does is it pathologizes the whole black community. Because, you you know, because see, this is what I'm saying, is that the relationship of telling black men that you can't have a conversation about yourself means that the black women in these communities that are trying to have a conversation about black men also become culpable, right? Yeah. This means yeah. that the black community as a whole doesn't talk about you know, the experiences or vulnerabilities of gay black people or trans black people because they're homophobic and transphobic, right? The 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 problem is that it the arguments that are being waged against black men suggest that them speaking about their vulnerabilities are irrelevant. So if any other person acts on their behalf, it only means that those people too don't like women, gay, lesbian, queer, transgender peoples in our communities. And this is the narrative that's being purported today, that black communities aren't progressive enough, which is why they don't understand the movements behind or the leadership behind Black Lives Matter. Because they've marginalized it. Yeah, and, and as the sun sets on President Barack Obama's tenure as the first African-American president, as a community, we find ourselves in one of the most polarizing periods since the 1960s, or even, you might say, the 1860s, in the sense that the question of building electoral employment, education, and functional black family processes have been stunted. And one of the things that 
I really worry about, and I want to talk to you about it, is how do black people, black women, how do we begin to extract our men from this invisibility? How do we begin to have conversations with our uh, fathers and grandfathers, uncles and close male friends about the experience they have, their intersectionality in our families as black men and, and you know, without subordinating um, any notion of that we all live under the same oppressive system of race mm-hmm. and no, discounting look, I this. I mean, we've been taught that you're, you're absolutely right. We have been taught that black men live in some kind of privileged system of gender. I don't know any of those black men, but what I do know is that all of the white men who have been injured by experiences of sexual abuse and harm in whatever way, however however it goes, that they, I mean, I'll I give you a good example. This Pope, in his visit to the United States of America, he talked openly about the injury caused by the Catholic Church to hundreds of thousands of boys who served or were part of church activities across this country. He talked openly about it. He talked Uh about the nature of its evil. He talked about the obligation of the Catholic Church to fix itself. I don't hear people talking about, you know, and I'm 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 on the um uh uh board of just detention. Uh-huh. And these are people who talk openly about and we've had them on this program a number of times and we've had the the author of Fish and how young boys are treated in prison. But we're not having open discussions in our communities, in our families, at the table. I mean, I am constantly talking to my older grandson about the notion of how sociopaths prey on on boys. I'm constantly, you know, I, I, one day he's going to say to me, Can, do we have to talk about this again today? But... um our own oppression outside of the circle of our sons and and nephews and you know men who have returned that was one of the issues of a committee meeting that I sat in on I just listened to them they're talking about how to teach families to talk about men who are returning from prison about their experiences of rape and other forms of sexual abuse. Yes. We're not doing that. And as long as we don't do that, and I'm not a professional and I'm not a psychologist, but my one of my BFFs is uh, uh, one of the people who who is supervising 
the care of the victims of the Roman Catholic Church in New England. And there is training going on of about about how to how to talk how families should be talking with the victims. Is it is part of the problem and why I'm so confused about it, Dr. Curry, because we're simply not doing it at all. No, we're not. I mean, I, I think that's the that re, that's the real issue. I mean, when we have, you know, time and scholarship devoted to domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and rape, um, males usually don't come up, but black males certainly don't come up, right? Uh-huh, and and uh-huh. this again, this is this is you know this is why I think the work of people like Oliver J. Williams is so important. Is that you know, and and even though the the work you know oh, decades ago, I love ago Oliver. By, he he and I have been friends for years and years and years. Yeah, he is one of yeah. the people that I worked on that project with. Okay, okay, um, excellent. That got funding from the CDC. Yes, yes. Well, you he know, was I mean, a pioneer. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. And this you see, this is the thing is that, you know, I've actually had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Williams on several occasions, you know, when I was working on the chapter in my book on domestic violence. Because I, you know, I said, look, you know, here's what I'm reading. Um, you know, I've read all this material. I've read your work next to it. As a clinician, tell me what you think. You know, and he was saying, well, look, you know, I think that we should treat, we should treat victims. And, you know, and that stuck with me because what we're ultimately doing, you know, and this is this is why I say that we have to be very careful about who we try to follow when we're talking about black men and boys. And we're following people with degrees in English that are talking about black men given a privilege, and you're not talking about black men and victims, which cause some of these other problems like domination or domestic abuse or even higher, the high rates of bidirectionality in our communities, then you're missing the boat, right? We have to start having conversations about the rape and sexual assault of young black boys in our communities that turn into black men who have all kind of mental health and psychological problems because of that unresolved trauma. And this is the ways in which our community, right, This is we're not going to find this on blogs, right? This is the way our community has to start really engaging in a concrete black studies about black men and boys because the, the effects of black men and boys, the trauma that they suffer – impacts the family, it impacts the women, it impacts the children. And I don't know why this is such a difficult concept to understand. Somebody calling themselves a feminist or saying that they're progressive or choosing a new identity doesn't stop the alcoholism, the economic problems, and the previous histories of trauma and violence that cause people to hit, that cause people to abuse. But we somehow have been fooled by this kind of identity politic and rhetoric and people arguing on Facebook about positions that us somehow claiming an identity resolves these fundamental issues. And I think this is why Dr. Williams' work is so important because what it points out is that there are environmental factors that contribute to how we treat each other. There's oppression and psychological factors, right, that that contribute to how we treat each other. And until you resolve those, no matter what you call yourself, no matter how much masculine you think you've gotten rid of because people do what you say because, you know, you're a black feminist or whatever kind of feminist of the day, that doesn't resolve how people live, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's the problem, mm-hmm. right? That's the problem, that these black men and boys get raped. Not just and, and you know and, I, and and Dennis, I've had you have to understand I've had conversations with people who have been offended by me simply posting quotes or you know if you, you follow my page you know the you know when someone gets convicted of, of of raping a young black boy or a teenage boy I post that 
You know, I've had people tell me that they think that me posting that someone's, that a female has been convicted of rape is anti-woman because we believe so heartily, so wholeheartedly in this society that only men are rapists. You know, I've I've engaged in conversations where even where despite the federal law change of made to penetrate, you know, now becomes the definition of rape rather than the carnal knowledge of a female body. Even though the law has been changed for two years, people still will not concede or even acknowledge the possibility that young black boys who are in vulnerable positions in foster homes and juvenile detention centers, black boys who've simply just been abandoned by society generally that these individuals don't have very real traumas and experiences of rape at the hands of women. And one of the things that becomes so problematic about this, and we need to talk about the, the homosexual piece too, right, how other men are abusing black boys in our communities. I'm, I'm all for it. I'm, I'm trying to study black boys holistically, so that's a part of it. But the, I've, I've found so much resistance in even getting black people, specifically black women, to accept that they're, is rape of young black boys by other black women that it becomes almost unfathomable that even even when you present the statistics or the conviction rates like the individual case of this person is going to jail for rape there's a disbelief which says that you shouldn't talk about it but and there's another aspect to it Dr. Curry too and that is that we celebrate what do you call those, those old women that prey on young boys oh the cougars Cougars. We 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 celebrate this whole and we laugh at this whole notion of cougars, uh, where young young boys are in relationships with older women. We look at the news and we say see that teachers are involved in relation. Female teachers are involved in relationships with male students in high schools. We look at all of these things. We 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 somehow and and I don't mean to be crude about it and by by using the word celebrate because tonight I no, I no, let no, off with yeah. talking about what language, but we accept it we tolerate it. Um, a fifteen year old girl who is involved in a sexual relationship with a teacher in high school we are outraged by it. But if it's a fifteen year old boy involved in a relationship with a female teacher in high school and we kind of go oh what's wrong with her but Mm -hmm. then we move on and i think that that our boys i think that our boys and our men have picked that up no there's someone in our chat room who wants you to talk about misogyny uh and misanthropy um, what about those notions and how it plays into the way in which, even in our community, and, and Dr. Dr. Curry, for you, for those of you, you know I talk about this all the time, we see some people in our community as disposable, call the right. cops, uh, we see black boys who live in our neighborhoods who are involved in gang activity simply because parents are being neglectful and we don't see that as a problem because that's not our business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We see cops um, 
passing by certain locations in the inner city where black boys are involved in some kind of activity that doesn't look too kosher, and we say nobody ever calls the police department and says, you know, 20 or uh, these are young kids, and they're drinking and they're smoking weed because the cops see that as part of their profile, and that's mm-hmm. what black boys do. Exactly. So exactly. we're not. Who are we holding accountable? And why are we perceiving and seeing black men? You know the whole idea that we don't. We have shelters for men, but in those shelters, it's just a bed. You get the yeah. bed for the night, and seven o'clock in the morning, you got to be out of here. You sign up to get the bed for the next night. And that's right. and that's it. So and, and then we have women's shelters, which provide a form of safety. In our men's shelters, there is no form of safety. There, anything goes. So uh, we're not holding our systems or the people in charge of those. But l- let's talk a little bit about the concepts of misogyny and misanthropy and 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 what it is and is not. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, again, misogyny now refers to practically any and everything that involves any discussion or disagreement with women on political issues. The actual definition of misogyny is a hatred of women, right? What we what we understand this to be is largely with the history of violence, rape, uh, discrimination, Right, the notion of inferiority—it's—it's it's akin to the kind of hatred that leads to their actual dehumanization. Um, but as with most things in the 21st century, uh, it's basically been applied to anything that when you disagree with feminist politics, you're misogynist. When you disagree with the standpoint of women, you're misogynist, etc. Right. So it's kind of watered down that definition. Um, Which let me trophy, let me make a very tiny, 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 tiny distinction. There is a difference between hating a woman and hating all women. All women, absolutely, absolutely, right. But you know, but that's why I say in these, in the world of identity politics, so many things become conflated, right? Um, that any disagreement between scholars, you know, you think back to, you know, disagreement or the between Cornel West and Melissa Harris Perry, that becomes branded with the idea of misogyny and sexism, right? You know, any any kind of conflict between these two groups now becomes conflated with that. Misanthropy um, is well, just they talk about me humanity. because I hang with you. <laughs> oh well, you know. What what can I say? You can't break a love. This is a love yeah, you, train. You're guilty by association. <laughs> but see, but this is but this is what I mean by this, right? You know, and and let's, I mean, if we talk very very real for a moment, right? I mean, people people have suggested that you know my work is misogynistic simply because I discuss black boys, right? Like you know, and this is this is what I mean that there is a program of intellectual engagement in the university. And even in the public, right? That supposes that if you don't buy, it's a morality. It's a it's a it's a cult like morality, which suggests that if you do anything outside of this belief system, then ultimately you're incorrect and condemnable. That because I say, look, you know, you can study black women all day. My wife studies black women. She studies black women's health chances and obesity, right? 
we have we have great conversations. There's no conflict because she uses data, right? So we we're, we're trying to understand how things actually function in the world. But in the larger community, in the larger academic and public community, what you have are people who say, I disagree with that view. I think black men are more oppressed. Well, then if you think that, you're misogynistic because you're not holding the position that you should hold about black women based on intersectionality, right? And what we do is instead of understanding how black women are truly victims of hatred in this society, specifically lower classes of black women, how they're actually victims of a pure hatred, Right, a kind of this criminogenic notion that these are the people that birth black men who destroy and kill and rape, etc. We don't understand that. So then when we have these conversations, what we're talking about isn't really the hatred of black women, but rather a certain, a, a, an academic and a middle class and upper middle class group of women who are able to use that language in such a way that it demonizes the speaker. So in many ways, it's the same thing that we saw with, with, with the, the street harassment video. You have a class of economically mobile bourgeois black women who literally believe that the interaction uh, with their bodies by working class or poor black men is akin to misogyny. They've internalized the same views that white women have about black men stemming from Jim Crow forward. And these are racial pathologies where they believe where they believe that they're in a certain type of distinction that separates them from the masses of black people. But, you know, over the last, another consideration, I think, that has to be made and thrown into the discourse about this and what has happened and where did, where did, where did uh, these, I mean, black feminists have been around for a long time. Yeah, uh, sure. Most activists uh, who have actually been doing grassroots roots work will not refer to themselves as black feminists. They will com- refer to themselves as uh, womanists. And uh, there's a wonderful piece that was written by Ida B. Wells on that issue, if you have any questions about what I'm saying. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, the, the idea is, is, is simply has to be enveloped in, in, in this notion that we cannot continue or think that we can continue to build strong black families where one group is isolated from the other. That's the bottom line. That's the real talk right there. No. You no, cannot like will have, not survive on that basis. And, 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 and this is how the system of white supremacy works. Um, I have talked with uh, Dr. Neely Fuller about it. I've talked with Dr. Francis Chris Welsing about it, with Tim Wise, um, uh, J.A. Rogers. The whole notion that anything that that the system of white supremacy, you have to look for clues for division at every point. And this whole... The new system or the new factors within the white system of white supremacy in this country is creating these cottage industries, the blogs, the MSNBC contributor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I know you write for Salon sometimes, but Salon.com and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and picking off. The brilliant, I mean, you know, I know you you and uh, Dr. Brittany Cooper uh, have this long history and you have this, you have some friction going on 
um, and you know she's been beating you up in her, in the blogs and in the wherever she writes salon dot com and her feminist wire and uh, but this is how the system, folks. This is how the system works. It picks you off. How do I know? Well, it comes from having spent nearly 30 years in corporate America and the rest of my time with some black folks and some white folks telling me. I mean, Dr. Curry, when I first started radio, the white people would come at me and say, oh, my God, there's this woman. I was better then than I am now. But there's this woman on radio. Let's make her like the Oprah of radio. Well, I don't want to be the Oprah of radio. I don't want to give away cars, and I don't want to be the mammy to white people. Right. Right. And that's what we've got to recognize, that this is a form of picking you off, the best and the brightest. I look at, I I listen to some of these women in Black Lives Matter and and the men as well. I, I listen to the Dream Defenders. Today I was... Uh, listening on C-SPAN to the um, Black Lives uh, Matters conference in Washington, D.C. Brilliant young black people, brilliant. Rashad Robinson, uh, his critical analysis is absolutely spectacular. There was a young woman from somewhere, I don't know where she was from, UC Berkeley or someplace, and um, and I was just the just the intellectual acuity that was going on in that room with those speakers and those panels was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But they will, you know, as Toni Morrison says, they will come for you. And that's what we have to be very vigilant about. And and so I'm not beating up on any black feminists, you know, do what you, but they set up this cottage industry for you to separate you from me and Dr. Curry and Hakimata Booty and uh, just, it just goes on. I mean, I, I think about Amiri Baraka and I think about Betty Shabazz and I think about uh, Carolyn Rogers and Etheridge Knight and Jawanza Kunjufu. They've all done the work that they should have been doing. And they had to build a resistance. Come over here, be on the TV. Uh, we'll give you uh, $1,500 and fly you into New York, and you could be on the TV. Uh, come over here. We'll publish your book. We'll give you $50,000 in advance for your book. But your book got to say this and got to say that. And that's yeah. all I'm going to say about that because, Dr. Curry, I have blown the break. Our number is 347-838-9852. We're in conversation with Dr. Tommy J. Curry of Texas A&M University, and we will be right back. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. layer of the mask 
off that we seem to wear every single day and to start to speak about our issues, those childhood wounds and scars and secrets and, and lies that sometimes fester inside of us because we are afraid to speak disappointments and, and fears and that someone has hurt our feelings. So we're excited about it. We're asking one million people. We're seeing the effects of a horrible public education system that discriminates against our kids on the basis of race and on the basis of their zip code, and things are getting much, much worse. It is an absolutely deplorable situation that the United States, which is supposed to be the greatest nation on earth, allow, sits back and allows black boys to be murdered. to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Hi, this is Janice Graham of Our Common Ground reminding you that we face many challenges in our communities all across this nation. Join the Black Collective. Find a way, find a place for your voice, for your activism, for your passion for our people that leads to liberation. Your community and our people need you. With this one white girl, and we just gone off the bus, and we were about to, we were almost home, and there were these group of black kids that just gone out of school, and she was like, "Oh, let's cross the street. There's a group of black kids. I don't want to run into them." And so she told me, which I don't even know why she would do that. It's wear a sweatband, like just to reinforce my wrist. And I had a teacher come up to me and say, "You should take it off because it looks gang affiliated." I've been in situations where, you know, I had to cross the street because I didn't want to scare the white lady that was walking. I'm letting you know that it ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh no. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is take the chains off. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is be free. All we want to do is take the chains off. And we thank you for being with us. On Our Common Ground tonight, we thank our new listeners, and don't forget to join us on Facebook, Twitter, follow us at Janice OCG, and we have OurCommonGround.com, where you can find all of the fine resources that we work hard to present you to keep you on top of the issues of the spirit of liberation in America. Our guest tonight, Dr. Tommy Curry. Dr. Curry, you're writing a new book. Yes, ma'am. Can I, what's the title? 
Um, the man not uh, towards a field of black manhood studies. Wow, the man not. That is something that you all will have to. Can we get a uh, sign-up for when it comes out the press? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, well, I'm, pretty, I'm actually pretty excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited about it as well. Tell us about what we, what we'll be able to find in the book. Well, you know, a few things. You know, one of the major pieces that I'm trying to argue is that we need a new theoretical account of black men and black boys. And I'm arguing that we need to do that through the foundation of black manhood studies because black men have considered themselves to be quite separate from how white men have thought about themselves in society. So these theories uh, like hegemonic masculinity, intersectionality, aren't really doing justice to black men. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, people or readers of the book will really enjoy is I've actually found a manuscript by Eldridge Cleaver uh, that speaks about his time in prison in 1957 when he was convicted of rape and his relationship with another black man. Uh, one of the things that's the strength of his manuscript, besides just him talking about this relationship with, uh, he calls him Little Jesus, uh, is that he analyzes the prison as a homoerotic institution. He says that the prison was meant to house the kind of sexual lust and the sexual desires of white men and allows them to control and exercise those things on black male bodies. Uh, so those are the two two highlights of it. But then I talk about real concrete issues like the myth of the super predator, uh, the domestic sexual abuse of young black boys, and how we need more holistic theories besides the Duluth model, which suggests that uh, domestic violence only happens by black uh, by men who perpetrated against women. You know, I'm really trying to expand the way that we look at violence holistically in our in our communities, and hopefully it will generate some new theories or at least a discussion on why we need to start looking at empirical realities, the actual suffering of young black men and boys to get to get off uh, get these things off the ground. Mhm. I've been encouraging. I, I'm really excited about uh, when I'm able to get my hands on this. And of course, I want you to um, put your your children's uh, handprints in the in the back cover uh, and 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 sign it and put your new tennis scores on and your new chess scores on. <laughs> uh I'm re I'm really excited. I think that this will be uh one of the most important uh scholarly works. Um and what I'll do and I promise you I'll do it. You know I'll do it. I'm going to read from your book and then I'm going to translate for my audience. <laughs> <laughs> I won't translate. I'll extrapolate in and making it making it real plain about uh, your what you're saying. I am just so very excited to uh, know that. Um, and and you know the other thing, I, I just want to tell you this, and I'm not fussing at you, Tommy. I'm really not fussing at you. You need to take all of your papers and put it in one place. I run around like a little stick lady, uh, going from <laughs> racism review to to um, the academia dot edu, right. um, looking for your stuff. I I you know you are one of the first people if something comes to mind that. Um, I need to get centered about, get informed about, get educated about. Uh, you are one of those people. I appreciate I, I just, that. I think your presence in the academy is just so very important. And I hope people really understand 
that while you were doing the work on behalf of black men and black boys, there are other people who are doing the work uh, on behalf of black women and black men. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm about to sign up for the Social Security thing. I've decided. Mm-hmm. I'm scared I'm going to die before I get my Social Security alpha. Oh, I don't say that now. I, you know what alpha was out there saying. But um, so I've been researching um this whole, I, I've been researching about social security and reading a lot of life stories, uh particularly toning in on tuning in on to what black people are saying about there are just so many black people and black women because their life expectancy is so much longer than black men. Right. What they are saying and 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 stunned by the idea not stunned. I take it back. I didn't mean stunned. Just sad that there are so many black people where Social Security is the only income that they have after they stop working. Well, I'm not right. going to stop working. I'm just going to make them miserable. You know they wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, you know, but you know, Jennifer, like that's a very, but you see, this for me, this is a very real issue. This is a very real issue. Like, what does it mean for black men who work their whole lives? You know, because most black men do blue-collar jobs, and they don't uh-huh. live long enough to, to, to get the benefits of Social Security. Yeah, and the other part of it is um, another issue for black men, especially older black men uh, of our parents' generation, where they work jobs where nobody paid Social Security for, taxes on yeah. for them they they didn't have the, they were work on with mm-hmm. being paid under the table right so yeah. they're starting at the very bottom rung when they start collecting social, social security benefits and please it you know it goes back to the language things folks use the language of social security benefits and it is another way in which the body politics has decided to strangle poor people and to kill off black people by by reconfiguring the whole social security body of law better stay woke folks just stay woke and i think that when your book comes out all of you out there should be looking for a place for Dr. Tommy J. Curry to present. You should be calling your, if you are a graduate of um, of a university or a college, you should be calling them and saying, next year you need to be having Dr. Tommy J. Curry to talk about his new book because this is very important. And we need to stop mirroring everything in the black struggle just by what we see in our own mirrors. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, thank you so very much. For all of oh, you, you out ma'am. there, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a treat. Um, we always love having Tommy Curry at our common ground. See you next week with Dr. Ruby Sales. We'll be doing Rebellion and Resistance. If you're willing to accept our freedom, then you have to be willing to accept what comes with it. This is about every black man who cannot get justice. You need to represent. You need to be the voice for people who do not have a voice. 
Thank you for being with us on Our Common Ground, and a special thanks to Dr. Tommy J. Curry, our callers, our chatters, and those of you who are listening from some smart device. We're asking you to join the war for the minds of black people in this country. I'm Janice Graham. Join me next Saturday, 10 p.m., with Dr. Ruby Sales as we continue our discussion on resistance and rebellion. If it's Saturday night, I'll be listening for you. Yeah.